My name's Jacinta. I'm part of the preaching cohort here at Vintage Pasadena. So Ben has spent a painstaking six to eight months now um, getting us all trained up and ready to share in the preaching work with him here at the church. So thank you for being here with me. Um, now, the New Testament is filled with stories of Jesus casting demons out of people. These demons were causing issues such as blindness, mutism, deafness, seizures, mental distress, difficult behavior. It's pretty complicated stuff. I think of it as advanced level Christianity. And I can assure you we're not gonna crack it all here this morning. But what I am gonna do is three things. I'm gonna talk for some time about what spiritual warfare is not. Then I'm gonna tell you a little bit about what it was and still is for me and might be for some of you. And then we'll look at the armor in its hull. But before I go any further, I'd like to share with you a sweet thing that happened about two weeks ago in the pre-service prayer meeting. Ben asked the children's ministry team to tell us what the kids would be learning upstairs that week. And we started with Sam, our wonderful elementary school pastor. And she said, we're gonna be looking at the um, ancient prophets, Zephaniah specifically, and the way that God called the people back to worship because no matter how grim life gets, we can always turn back to God. We were all very impressed. <laughs> we moved down a step to, I think it was Laura who was running the preschool group. And she said, we're gonna be looking at the fact that Jesus was a, a friend to sinners because God loves everybody. We thought, yep, yeah, good. The babies and the toddlers in nursery, Camilla told us, the babies are gonna be learning that God loves. And it was just such a beautiful reminder of the way that as we grow in maturity and experience, the complexity of the things that we can understand escalates. Equally important to remember, especially today, is that if ever anything gets too complex, we can de-escalate. Okay, so let's keep that foundational truth right there. God loves. Let's keep that in mind as we approach today's reading, which comes from Ephesians 6. Okay, the reading is Ephesians 6 from verse 10. The armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the, his, his dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly 
as I should. There's a war on. Spoiler alert, God wins. He's already won. It's already finished. But the Bible is filled with mentions of war, battle, fighting, weapons, armies, soldiers, conflict, struggle, wrestling, victory, and defeat. Why is it all there if it's already finished? These military metaphors can be problematic because as humans, we are prone to confusion and misunderstanding, and we're not always exactly sure how much emphasis or time or effort we need to expend on the idea of spiritual warfare. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both. Spirituality is not a strange concept in many cultures. I'm half Chinese. In Asia, supernatural superstition is more generally accepted than here in the West. Please forgive my huge generalizations. But I've noticed and observed that in Europe and in North America, people don't immediately assume that problems are spiritually related. When I find myself frustrated by something as simple as misplacing objects around the house, the Chinese half of my brain immediately thinks gremlins. There are devils that are trying to mess with me and ruin my day. The Western part of my brain generally thinks ADHD. I'm raising my children here in the West, and I like to practice gentle parenting. My favorite strategies are affirmations, empathy, indirect language. I look my kids in the eye and I say, I see the good in you. You are not the same as your undesirable behaviors. You are good, but your choices were bad. In Asia, that's not so much the case. <clears throat> A gardener in the building complex where we used to live in Hong Kong would greet me every day with my two babies and say, which directly translated means they're so naughty. And I would be very offended because they were babies. How could they be naughty? I, see, I could see the good in them. And my mum had to explain to me the superstition behind this practice. Um, and not everyone's at this extreme, but the superstition goes that if you overpraise your children, you draw attention to them in the heavenly realms, thus leaving them open to attack and bad luck. Whereas if you put them down, the devil and his crew are like, ah, nothing to see here, let's move on to someone more interesting. It's weird. I've seen Christians pray for their sports teams to win. I've seen Christians pray for the weather to change so a church event doesn't get ruined. I've seen shouting prayer. I've seen shoving ministers. I've seen believers manifesting all over the floor. I'm not here to dump on anybody today. What I am here to do is publicly acknowledge that it can get pretty weird. The supernatural world, is it real? Or is it a kooky load of rubbish? I would think that most of us in this room would lean towards, yes, there is a supernatural world because we're here to worship a God who is unseen. And with gratitude, we accept the fact that he has a good and a perfect plan for each one of our lives. So a logical flip side to that would be that there is probably an enemy as well who may also have designs on us. 
First Peter 5.8 says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, a man who does not understand the nature of the problem he's confronting is a man who is already doomed to failure. Church, it's important that we try to understand spiritual warfare. But let's remember our safe base. God loves. And now we can add to it, God wins, so we don't need to be afraid. All that the armor is asking, is there for us to do, is to help us to stand and to pray. That's our part of this. But let's be mindful. It's human nature to lean all or nothing when it comes to tough issues. Nuance is really, really hard work. It demands more effort on our part. And in many tricky issues, I have to confess that I'm guilty of just wanting to declare my stance and then walk away. Sometimes we think the devil is just in everything. He's doing everything. He's messing with it all. And I'm powerless. What can I do? Or sometimes we think, oh, it's just nothing we need to worry about. Let go and let God. The problem with doing this is that it's a little bit sloppy and it makes us prone to getting swept up in group thinking. That means subscribing to the ideas of whoever just happens to have the loudest voice. Church, we need to be responsible, to be mindful, to think critically, and to be able to explain to people why we believe what we believe. And that's especially important at this point in this church's history, because we're still in our early years. We're still working out what this community is all about. And we get, to, we get to partner in that. Before we can take up the weapons listed in our passage today, it's important that we correctly identify the enemy. There are pockets of the church that have pointed their cannons haphazardly in the general direction of anything that looks unholy. But aiming just one degree in the wrong direction completely changes the trajectory of a weapon. And what this does is it creates new enemies while not dealing with the real one. In his absolutely fabulous memoir, Trevor Noah explains South Africa's history of separation. He says this, the genius of apartheid was convincing people who were the overwhelming majority to turn on each other. Apart hate is what it was. You separate people into groups and make them hate one another so you can run them all. As I prepared for this sermon, I felt a very strong urge to highlight one area of confusion about spiritual warfare, culture wars. The church has been caught up in this strange struggle, while well, some of the church has been caught up in this struggle for dominance in popular culture, what many of us loosely term the world. The world for many Christians is the enemy. We create these watered down Christian alternatives to whatever it is that's trending in the wider culture and thus separate ourselves from the world. As we aim for cultural domination, we create these two groups, them and us. We unashamedly shame the world and we make them the losers to God's victory. We feel triumphant. Brian Zand says, triumphalism is an ugly form of arrogance, engendering a sense of group superiority. Triumphalism is a smugness and a boastful pride that one's nationality or religion is superior to all others. Fun fact, 
<clears throat> Your worship leader, my husband, Tom, has a tendency toward this word that I cannot pronounce. Anybody familiar? This is the German word for the emotional experience of pleasure in response to someone else's misfortune. <clears throat> Let me assure you, although I completely don't get it, I don't suffer from this, I've seen that, at least for Tom, it's a pretty harmless character trait. It's just that he gets a real kick out of watching fail videos on YouTube. That's what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> Apparently, there's something that Tom and, I guess, millions of other viewers enjoy about watching people slip on frozen sidewalks or big tall trucks getting rammed under short bridges and, and seemingly infinite number of variations on the theme of men getting hit in the groin. It might be a male thing, I don't know. Tom's fail video habit came into our lives just as I was wrapping up on my final round of studies. I had taken on an extra teaching qualification and I was studying course design. Two of the key terms that were floating around in my head at that time were DLOs, desired learning outcomes, and DOs, which are desired uh, objectives, basically learning objectives. Any text or idea that I presented to the class needed to be pegged to one of those. Why am I doing this? What am I hoping to achieve? So I would study and then I'd close my laptop and go downstairs and sit down next to Tom on the sofa watching YouTube. And I would start flinching in like kinesthetic empathy with the idiots on the fail videos and start yelling, what were you trying to achieve? What was the objective there? And I tell you this because what was the objective and what is your desired outcome is a very sensible question for life if you want to avoid ending up on the fail videos, but also if you're part of a faith community who are building a culture. What is the desired objective? What is the outcome we are hoping for? Because humans are designed for connection, connection to God and connection to others. I'm not talking about free love, I'm talking about godly, righteous connection. We all want it, we all need it. And so therefore, we shouldn't really want to be creating a small island for us to be separated from the world, culturally. This is a crude generalization, but because I don't know specifically the details of God's will, I often think of it as a spectrum, and it's that game of hotter and colder when you're, when you're a kid, you probably know. I don't know if it has a name, but when you're moving closer to the thing, you go warmer, warmer, or colder, colder. When I'm moving away from the things of God in my life, I get a stronger sense of feeling isolated and separated, and I no longer experience love. As I move closer toward the things of God in my life, I notice healthy connections happening all over the place. Bell Hooks says, the choice to love is a choice to connect, to find ourselves in the other. Simeon Zal says, human beings are wired in such a way that judgment kills love. When we feel judged, we hide our love away. We put up our walls, we resist. If your theory of change depends in any way on the idea that telling someone what is wrong with them will lead to them changing what is wrong with them, you will be sorely ineffective. When we judge, we become fixated on the evil and the badness and the imperfection and lack of holiness in others. It's definitely there, but we become less conscious of the sin in ourselves where it definitely is as well. Focusing on the speck in someone else's eye means I'm forgetting that I'm a sinner too. And here's the last thing we mustn't forget on this point. God loves the world. He loves it so much he gave his only son. 
and he has a particular soft spot for unholy, imperfect failures. I wouldn't be standing here today if that wasn't the truth. Brian Zand again says, mercy triumphs over judgment would be a good motto for those wanting to model the beauty of Christ in the ugly world of cold, hard justice. If our churches are to be anything like a shelter from the storm, we must become famous for our mercy. But is this our reputation? If people find themselves in need of mercy, is their first thought to find an evangelical church? If not, then we need to change. Why were sinners attracted to Jesus and evidently felt quite comfortable around him? The answer is simple. In Jesus, they found mercy. I came across a sticker online that said, if you hate anyone because of your faith, you're doing it wrong. This book is the story of how God overcame the chasm between us and him. The book of Ephesians that we've been studying for the last several weeks is a celebration of the way that God brings different people together under the cross of Jesus. So as we wrap up this series today, asking what does it mean to be God's vintage church, I have it on good authority that we are trying to cultivate an environment in which mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? So then what is spiritual, uh, spiritual battle if it's not us dominating world culture? In light of what I've just shared about not judging others, I'm going to need to focus now the rest of the sermon on personal battles. There's no doubt that battles can happen at every degree of separation from our personal lives, but the best place to begin really is with ourselves. The armor allows us to have agency in our own story. So we could say that anything that hinders us from feeling that connection with God could be a spiritual battle. A battle is active. It's a participatory event and not a case of let go and let God as much as that is an enticing concept for some of us. <clears throat> yes, the victory is the Lord's, but no, we are not excused from action. The outcome of the war is not pegged to our action or inaction. Nevertheless, we are asked to stand and we are called to pray. Verse 18 of Ephesians 6 says, pray in the spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. All kinds of prayers, praying in the spirit. In the early years of my Christian life, I was a teenager, I kept hearing people talk about praying in tongues for 15 minutes a day. Everywhere I went, I just happened to hear people say this and I thought that's an oddly specific and quite random piece of advice that I keep hearing. A few years later, I came across a possible source for this piece of advice in uh, Jackie Pullinger's memoir, Chasing the Dragon. For anyone who's not familiar with who Jackie Pullinger is, she is pretty much the most famous missionary based in Hong Kong. Um, and she's a hero of the faith who's helped hundreds if not thousands of drug addicts find freedom. But the part about her story that struck me was that there was a season early in her ministry where she didn't feel effective at all. She had seen that the grip of addiction was spiritual in nature, but it wasn't until she adopted this practice of praying for 15 minutes in tongues every day that her ministry to these people became effective, something unlocked, something she didn't fully understand. Jackie's example became very, very real to me when I experienced a significant mental breakdown in my early 20s. It was dramatic, uh, 
impulsive act of self-harm landed me in the emergency room of my local hospital. And that was followed by years of medication and the very, very hard work of recovery. Recovery is a lifelong, never-ending process, but 20 years down the road, I'm really not messing around when I say that I stand here by God's grace alone. Because I was a Christian when I had my breakdown. My faith didn't somehow exempt me from that battle. I wrestled for years, feeling like I had disqualified myself completely from ministry. For years, I went over and over the question, two questions, what is my problem and how do I get rid of it? It was a very frustrating time. Was it hereditary? Was it a mental illness, a personality flaw? Was it trauma, basic stupidity, a spiritual attack? Had my bad choices in life brought this curse upon me and was I doomed forever? No one else, as much as lovely people tried, could untangle this mess for me. They couldn't untangle my stuff. I wanted desperately to go to the prayer ministry team and get some prayer and then emerge and go, ta-da, I'm fixed. But it didn't work like that. It wasn't until I quit striving that it finally occurred to me that maybe, just maybe, the same God that showed Jackie how to pray and pray heroin addicts through their withdrawals painlessly, maybe that same God could show me how to pray and pray myself back up onto my feet and pray myself out of the dark tunnel that I felt stuck in. It turned out he could, and he did, and he does. What God has done in my life, I count as a miracle, but it wasn't spontaneous and it wasn't lightning bolt fast. Mine was what Eugene Patterson calls a long obedience in the right direction. I come from a family line whose story includes patterns of mental illness. And for many of us, part of our personal battle involves clearing a new path through the jungle. God can and does change family patterns, but we have to walk it out. We have to live it out. We have to invite him into the thick of it in order to forge a new path instead of just walking the one that the person in front of us walked. There are also several wonderful family traits that I inherited, and part of my battle is laying claim to those regularly and maintaining that claim. So for me, in hindsight, I'd say my problem was a combination of spiritual and hereditary patterns, neurodivergence, cultural identity confusion, and the fact that growing up is just really hard. But the things that helped me were a very personal understanding of a loving God who's greater than every other enemy. The support and complete absence of judgment from a strong and loving family, a loving community, a church with healthy leadership, professional therapy, and time. So to anyone who is in this room right now and needs to hear it said from a pulpit, recovery is a battle and we know there are days where the challenge feels insurmountable. But there is good news. There is a God who is greater than any other power. And he wins. He's given us every single thing we need to stand, and the odds are stacked in your favor. Personally, I've come a very long way from that awful time in my 20s, and this really hit home to me a couple of years ago. Tom and I were at the end of a very long process of becoming approved as foster parents in England. And I had to sit down with the social worker and lay out every single thing I'd ever been through. 
This took me four hours, at the end of which I was pretty sure she was going to go, mm -mm, no way, <laughs> no way. But actually, she spoke what I needed to hear. I think it was God speaking. She said to me, we all have our stuff. The fact that you have figured out how to deal with your stuff makes you so much more useful to these vulnerable kids than, than otherwise. Thank you for telling me your stuff. The chances are very high that you have your stuff too. Maybe they're not the, it's not the same as me, but some version of something that you kind of would have rather not have happened. Some people have their stuff and choose not to deal with it. That's an option. Others haven't had it yet. Maybe you've been spared. And I'm very sorry to say this, again, from a church pulpit, but it's probably coming, either to your life or to one near you. And when it does, may you take up every helpful thing that God has on offer in order to stand firm. We all have the same message. You are not disqualified. God is in the business of redemption. It's really tempting to plug our ears because it's hard. Plug our ears and go, la, 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 I don't want to deal with it. But we mustn't because God's got something better. The two passages that I turned to daily in the early days were, uh, firstly, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. I needed that. And the other was Ephesians 6, where we're focusing today. And I'm going to read to you the same passage again, but this time from the message version, because it's sometimes helpful to change things up. And that about wraps it up. God is strong. So take up everything the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best material, and put them to use so you'll be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no weekend war that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps, a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. God's word is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Pray hard and long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep each other's spirits up so no one falls behind or drops out. The armor of God. An important detail to notice, for those of you who are familiar with this passage and know that we get the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, what am I missing, the shoes, the sword, and the shield. Most of that is defensive. Most of it is there to protect us so that the wounds that we will, um, the blows that we get throughout battles, and they are coming, will not be terminal. The only one that could be thought of as offensive is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I like how the Bible lays that out clearly because God knows that we might get that wrong and take up actual swords. Um, it's the word of God. All of these things need to be taken up in order to be effective. For example, I have forgotten to put my glasses on. My, my glasses are really, really helpful, but I need to put them on. I don't need them, actually. My text is really big, thanks. <laughs> um, God's idea of fighting is different from the human's 
understanding. It's not tit for tat, it's supernatural. The Jesus we meet in the Bible is famous for flipping the script, isn't he? The examples he set time and time again are revolutionary and radical. He said, if someone sins against you, forgive them. If somebody takes your coat, give them your shirt too. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. It's radical. God's response to conflict, it's peace. God's response to a corrupt and broken world, it's supernatural. It's not natural. It's not human. It's not off with their heads, wipe the slate clean. It's a plan for salvation and an invitation into a whole new life in which you can heal. The final thing I'm going to say here is about the armor as a whole. I heard a preacher talking on this topic once many years ago, and he said, ha, 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 the funny thing about the armor is that there's nothing to cover your backside because you're not supposed to run away. You're not supposed to retreat. Um, Carla offered me a funny, a funny picture to share with you on this point. <laughs> now, I partially agree with this. There is definitely a forward momentum to our faith. But here's a slightly different take. Could it be that we have nothing guarding our backs because we're surrounded by others in the faith? We can figuratively and literally have each other's backs. Also, I suspect that there are people coming up behind me in life who need to see my vulnerabilities. When I look to those who are a few steps in front of me, either in life experience or in faith, I have zero interest in seeing shiny, perfect leaders and role models. I don't want to worship anyone who's kidding themselves. When we present a facade to one another, we fail again in that in that intended outcome that we talked about earlier because we lie to each other and we put on a front that fosters separation rather than connection, rather than a message of mercy and hope. I want the people coming up behind me to see that although our struggles are probably different, essentially we are the same. We have the same vulnerabilities and we have the same protection. Now, I'm not suggesting that we just indiscriminately air our dirty laundry to each other. That's not wise. There's a time and a place and a season for everything, right? There's a time to be open about our journey, and there's also a time to go into our cave and face our devils and demons and giants. Figuring this out requires prayer, and it's usually a much slower pace than what we would like. But every single one of us in this room can join the ranks with Jackie Pullinger and the other heroes of the faith and everyone named in the Bible as an example of what can happen when God's love and his power change a life. May a vintage church be one in which each member stands firm with the awareness that how we engage our battle has an effect on others. And how we engage our battles affects the patterns that echo over generations. God loves, fear not, God wins, and we're just called to stand and pray. So we're going to pray now. I'm going to invite you all to stand if you would like to, and if you want to open your hands, if any of this has struck a chord with you. I'm going to list out a few things um, that may, may be relevant. After we finish this, we'll go into our last song and the prayer ministry team is gonna come down the front. 
um, if there's something specific that you would like some extra support in, I want to encourage you that while a lot of what I've said this morning is about you engaging with the battle in your personal life, please know you are in a community. And there are people in this community who have a special heart, special training and experience when it comes to battling alongside somebody, supporting you as you work through the stuff in your life. So if there's any of that that you want to receive support for, please come down the front and let the prayer ministry team pray with you and let them direct you to Ben the pastor when he's back soon or anywhere else that you might want support. Meanwhile, let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you win that you hold all the power, God. And I thank you that you invite us into your story. I pray for any of us who have fallen victim to that judgment that I mentioned earlier, have been made to feel less or, or unworthy. God, please remove that damage now. And for any of us who have fallen guilty, fallen prey to the temptation to judge others or to create that little separate island of Christian bubble, Lord, please forgive us and help us to adjust our behavior. Father, right now I pray for anyone who is in the thick of a battle of their own, going through something very hard that people may or may not know about. Holy Spirit, you know. I pray for strength. I pray for encouragement. I pray for hope that your will be done, Lord. And for every one of us here, we pray for discernment. Show us what's going on. Show us what our problems are and how to deal with them in the right way. Show us how to use every tool that you've laid out for us, every weapon, because when it's you, Lord, it's effective. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to look at the problem through your eyes. I pray for everyone here who wants to be in that lineup of examples of how you can change a life. God, let your will be done. Let nothing stand in the way. And Father, I pray for all of us here who want to commit to creating that merciful, judgment-free community. May we be a vintage church that is a judgment-free place of mercy. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.